Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. everybody to another episode. This week, Halloween has come a little early. I'm going to talk about witches. Well, not actual witches, but rather the Salem witch trials. And a shout out to one of my listeners, Tammy, who requested a deep dive into this topic. Hope you all enjoy it. I've always been fascinated by the Salem witch trials. Well, if I'm being honest, I've always been fascinated by witches in general. It was my go-to costume when I was a kid every year for Halloween. But the trials were an insane part of our history, where 200 people were accused of witchcraft and almost 20 would be killed as a result. This week, I'm going to talk about who was involved, how the trials got started, and the impacts to the colony. It's a pretty intense episode, everybody. Prepare yourselves. So grab your coffee, peeps. Let's do this. Salem Village, also known as Salem Farms, was not really a town, but more a rural district of the main Salem, Massachusetts, and was located northwest of the harbor in what is known today as Danvers, Massachusetts. The Massachusetts Bay Colony was governed by a, quote, secular body called the General Court, but in reality it was a Puritan-infused theocracy, and anyone who espoused different beliefs or failed to follow the strict Puritan code were viewed as suspicious and treated as outsiders to the community. The idea of magic, that it was real, that it was practiced and could be experienced at any time, was not a new idea in the colonies. Many people believed magic was all around them, and that there was differences between light magic, meant to do good, and dark magic, where people were influenced by the devil. It was this fear of dark magic that would have the Massachusetts Body of Liberties include witchcraft as punishable by death, mirroring English law. The Salem witch trials were different than other witch hunts in the fact that there was no burning at the stake. Almost everyone accused was hanged, except for one individual who had a rather gruesome death I will get into later. What also makes these trials unique was for the first time it was women who were accusing fellow women. Historically, a woman was accused of witchcraft by a man, seen as steadfast and trustworthy in their assessments. So it's odd that these girls, literally as young as nine years old when they first made their accusations, would be taken so seriously. As a Puritan society, there was little to do outside of household chores and church services. Childhood did not last long in the colonies, being responsible for household work by the age of seven. Another common element throughout Puritan society was the lack of autonomy or power women held. Women, seen as weak-souled and meant to bear children, were rigidly controlled and powerless. This may have contributed to the initial accusations from young women who would otherwise be faceless within their own community. At the center of the trial is a man named Samuel Paris. This guy came to Salem as a minister and was obsessed with the idea of the devil and his own station and importance within the colony. And once the accusations began, Paris helped fuel the hysteria due to his own fear of the devil and his workings. Also, as you will hear, Paris may have been worried about his own reputation given who was involved in the accusations. Paris arrived in Salem in June of 1688 from Boston to act as the town's minister. With him was his wife, a woman who was frail and likely ill, his daughter Elizabeth, or Betty as she was known, his niece Abigail Williams, and two slaves, Tituba and John Indian. It all got weird starting in January of 1692, where out of nowhere, Betty and Abigail started experiencing physical fits, 
rocking back and forth, hiding under tables, and contorting their body in weird ways. Upon a doctor's examination, there were no medical explanations for the recent fits, and the girls were left undiagnosed. It would take a few weeks before the girls would be diagnosed with bewitchment. In an odd attempt to prove the girls were bewitched, a neighbor suggested baking a witch cake. This is really gross, you guys. The idea of the witch cake is to bake it with the urine of the suspected hexed individuals inside the cake. After it's baked, it was to be fed to the dog to see if the dog started acting weirdly. And if the dog started acting weirdly, that proved that the girls were bewitched. You know, because that's the only thing that can happen when you eat a urine-filled cake, right? We don't know if the dog ever ate the cake. Already on edge due to the smallpox epidemic spreading throughout the colony, Paris was incensed upon hearing of the cake's baking and was convinced the town was hexed by the devil. And so, with the diagnosis of bewitchment, the town became intently focused on finding the culprits and protecting Betty and Abigail, thus giving them attention they would not otherwise receive. Facing intense pressure to cite a cause for their fits, the girls accused three women in Salem, Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Titipa, the slave woman who was responsible for Betty's care. According to the girls, Titipa had introduced them to witchcraft while in her care. While the accusations were initially started by Betty Paris and Abigail Williams, they would soon be joined by Elizabeth Hubbard, Mary Wilcott, Mercy Lewis, and Anne Putnam. All three women accused were middle-aged, awkward, and considered outcasts who did not follow Puritan ideals and therefore were easy targets. One of the accused, Sarah Good, was a beggar who may have had a cognitive disability. Another, Sarah Osborne, seemed to be called out due to her financial independence, something uncommon for women during this time, and for crossing a member of the most powerful family in the area, the Putnams. The Putnams were bad people, you guys. The largest and most powerful family in the colony, they soon took advantage of the accusations and would go on to make a number of accusations of witchcraft, almost all of whom were considered family enemies. After their arrest, they were brought in front of magistrates to provide testimony and evidence of their innocence. The examinations were meant to determine if there was sufficient evidence to bring the accused to trial. At the inquiry, Betty and Abigail were present and began rocking back and forth, purportedly as a result of being within the witch's power. Of the three accused, Titiba would be the only one to confess. Titiba was seen immediately as suspicious due to being an indigenous woman. The Puritans believed Native Americans were worshippers of the devil, and she didn't help her cause by admitting to baking the witch cake. In admitting to the cake, Titiba also mentioned her prior mistress was a witch and showed Titiba some magic. This created a perfect storm. Paris, worried about his reputation and super paranoid about the devil, would focus his might into getting Titiba to confess to witchcraft. It is believed prior to walking into the inquiry, Titipa was excessively beaten and perhaps told what to include in her confession. Paris did not want to be seen as the guy who brought the devil to the colony, so he was going to do everything in his power to make sure that his name was as far removed from this debacle as possible. And apparently, his beatings worked, and Titipa confessed to performing witchcraft, stating the devil made her write her name in a book where she also saw the names of Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and several others she could not read. This confession served not only as confirmation of the girl's tale, but also fear of more witches within the town's borders. The idea that there were unidentified witches hexing the town aided in the hysteria and spread of accusations. Sarah Good continued to claim innocence, throwing guilt towards her other two co-defendants in a doomed attempt to save her own ass. After several weeks of inquiries, or investigations, by the magistrates, an official court was established by Governor William Phipps on May 27, 1692. 
The first case brought to this court would not be the one of the accused by Betty or Abigail, but for a woman named Bridget Bishop who was guilty of supposed promiscuity and gossiping. This was enough to get you hung in colonial America. Bridget holds the distinction of being the first to be hung during this fit of hysteria, dying on June 10th. Made up of a panel of seven judges, the accused witches were forced to provide for their own defense without the aid of legal counsel. Because that always ends well. Spectral evidence, or supposed eyewitness testimony of the acts committed by the accused, was the predominant method of proof used in the trials. This practice was discontinued in England, but remained allowable throughout the trials in Salem Town. And obviously, defending yourself against nothing but the testimony of another is a bit challenging and led to many women being found guilty. Grand juries almost always indicted. When this failed, the accused were just rearrested under new charges. Once arrested, there was a lot of pressure to admit to witchcraft, leading to numerous false confessions and is the first recorded example of coercion. So why admit to witchcraft if you did nothing wrong? Well, those who confessed were spared a death sentence since the Puritans believed God would enact his revenge in the afterlife. Failure to admit to wrongdoing did not end well. One such individual who refused to admit to witchcraft, Giles Corey, was pressed for failure to cop to his crimes. And when I say pressed, I'm not using metaphors. Pressing was gruesome and was a process by which the accused would be stripped naked and forced to lie down with heavy boards and boulders placed on them until they were crushed to death. Crushed to death. In Corey's case, it would take two days to kill him. In a much quicker death, Sarah Good was hung on July 29, 1692, with four other women. Good refused to admit guilt up until her death, infamously declaring she was no more a witch than the judge was a wizard. The hangings took place in a location referred to as Proctor's Ledge, about a quarter mile from Gallows Hill. Despite its name, Gallows Hill is not where the women were hung, being too steep a hill to pull a wagon up. From Proctor's Ledge, those hung would be seen throughout the town, a warning to those who practice the dark arts. After Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tituba were accused and arrested in February, three more females, Martha Corey, Rebecca Nurse, and a four-year-old child named Dorothy Good were also accused. This quickly snowballed into an explosion of accusations and warrants issued. By April 30th, 21 more people had been arrested and examined. The charges filed stated the accused either made an unlawful covenant with the devil or were afflicted with witchcraft. The spread of charges continued until the governor's wife, Lady Mary Phipps, faced an accusation, again based solely on spectral evidence. Deciding he had had enough, and being a boss and protecting his wife, the governor terminated the court overseeing the proceedings and established a new court to hear charges. However, this new court would be barred from hearing spectral evidence at trial. The removal of spectral evidence seemed to be the nail in the proverbial coffin. While more women and men faced accusations of witchcraft, there seemed to be little evidence to support said charges, and death was no longer a viable punishment. By May of 1693, the trial ceased, and the remaining individuals in custody were pardoned by the governor. In the end, 19 individuals were hanged, and five would die in custody. Soon after the trials concluded and the hysteria dissipated, the community realized their mistakes and made attempts at contrition. On January 14, 1697, the general court ordered a day of fasting in honor of the trials. And in the years that followed, the colonial governments would end capital punishments for witchcraft, issue pardons for those accused, and pay restitutions to the families, in a small act of acknowledging their failures to protect their citizens. The Salem witch trials are a deadly example of mass hysteria and the grip it can hold over a community. And while it remains the most deadly example of mass hysteria, this theme will come up again during the McCarthy era, 
a set of public trials to root out communists. But we'll save that for a future episode. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Thank you.